Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and uh, I am joined this week by... Wait a minute. What? What is... Go- oh, my goodness. Ladies and... Oh, my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, back, 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 back. From paternity leave, 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 for one show only, 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 only. Ed, he's a new father and he's pretty tired. Condon, Condon. Ed, how you doing? I am pretty tired, JD, honestly. <laughs> well, I'm welcome to the show. I'm glad you had a show. For listeners who do not know... Uh, my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, um, had a baby. Well, it's more accurate to say uh, his wife had a baby on Saturday. We are recording this podcast on Thursday, so you have effectively a five-day-old child um, in your life, if my math is correct. And, and here you are. I didn't expect to see you, and you said you wanted to do the show, and you you must be pretty tired. I, I am pretty tired. Um, I, I can definitely say that Whatever the right preparation for welcoming a new baby into the house is, sleeping or not sleeping, rather, on a hospital chair for four days is definitely not the right way of going about it. And is that what you um, did? You slept in a hospital chair for four days? Well, I, I tried to on various occasions, but it never really worked. I think I, I, think I clocked up a whole hour between um, Thursday and Sunday. But, you know, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Everything is fine. It's great. Well, tell the people what they want to hear. Tell us about the baby. Tell us how Mrs. Condon is doing. People are far... You, you already know this, and this is going to be the rest of your life, so get used to it. But the, the people are not listening to hear about you. They're listening right now to hear about the baby. So, Ed, you got to tell us about the baby. Uh, the baby is wonderful. We, we have named her Mary for Our Lady... Uh, she is practically perfect in every way, and we have the the various APGAR test results to prove it. Uh, mother and child are doing well. It was a very long and um, not straightforward uh, delivery, which occasioned some moments of acute anxiety for all concerned. But, um, you know, I, I have to say, and in fact, I was just writing something to this effect um, when we started recording, that I've heard from so many people, literally hundreds of people, uh, either on Twitter or emailing or writing or messaging or whatever else to say how they were praying for my wife and I during all of this and for our child. And, um, you know, really thank you because I'm, the prayers were not offered idly. They were, they were much needed and well-received. And so thank you to everyone who did that. It, it is deeply appreciated. Uh, we are, I mean, I, what I want to say is we are settling into family life than normal, but I think it would be a gross overstatement to suggest that we had settled into anything at this point, but we are, um, we're living that curious sort of half-life right now that is on a 24-hour clock with, um, with a baby that definitely seems to prefer the hours of midnight to 6 a.m., uh, for doing anything, but... And that changes. That's like a baby, a newborn thing, and then the baby eventually even though it still wakes up in the night, you know, eventually isn't just awake all night. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the point. I, I'm not expecting, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an idiot. I don't expect the child to sleep through the night. But if we could, if we could go from, if we could shift her by about 12 hours so that she wasn't like quiet and napping for two and a half hours at a stretch during the day and only 45 minutes at a stretch during the night, that would be delightful. Um, but we'll get there, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it will happen. It's like a natural, I think babies... I can't remember why. There's some reason why all babies are 
nocturnal and then I, I guess they don't have really circadian rhythms yet. I don't know, but there's some reason. I just assumed why it was to do with our nocturnal and then they. Yeah, I thought the problem was ours. I thought it was because she was born in the <laughs> very, very early hours of the morning that that to her was, you know. That's what day looks like. That's you know, I, and maybe that was what it was. But okay, if it's if it's common to all children, then that's somewhat reassuring to know that perhaps that will change. What I think it might be actually is I think part of the reason why babies, when they're very young, when they're newborns, tend to be awake all night and sleep during the day, is because they don't yet have strong defenses against predators, and so when they need to venture out of the den in order to seek food or water, you know, it's far better for them to do so under cover of darkness than during the day when they. They have very little protection against predators and very little sense yet about how to camouflage themselves even. Well, that's unnecessary in this case. My house is very well defended. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. No but the baby close, doesn't know that. You. You know, the, the baby doesn't know that. That's true. Uh, yeah. But we're doing all right. Good. I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that. And um, just, I mean, how's Mrs. Condon feeling? Uh, she's, she's on the mend. As I said, it was a complicated and, and not at all easy uh, delivery process, but she's on the mend. And I, uh, it is, you know, it. Uh, I don't want to be mawkish or anything silly like that, but, you know, it, there there is something to, it's a moment of profound communion for us in our marriage, that there is this child that needs its mother to look after her. There's my wife who needs, to a degree, me to look after her at this point that there is, you know, there is this communion of, of love and service, which has to, you know, which has to be the basis of our family for, for right now in a very, in a very immediate way. And I, you know, I can only assume that this is a practical articulation of a spiritual reality that, um, hopefully will continue. Uh, this is how families are made, I guess. Question mark. I'm yeah, on Burgundy. Yeah. I don't know. Is that the most, is that sort of the most, uh, I mean, it's been five days. You have a five day old, but is that the most sort of surprising thing that you've observed about fatherhood thus far? Or what to you is indeed the most surprising thing about fatherhood thus far? Um, I guess the most surprising thing about fatherhood is the extent to which you don't feel, or at least I didn't feel like I changed becoming a father, but that I suddenly understood myself better, if that makes sense. Mm. That may sound like a hollow sophistry, but... Um, it is the best way I've been able to find to articulate it because that was something I was obviously thinking a lot about um, before the birth. I was thinking, you know, well, I know everything is going to quote unquote change when there is a baby, that this is the the life changing event when you have your first child. And so I was wondering, you know, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that my whole life is going to change? What does it mean to say that my outlook on everything is going to change? You know, does this occasion some kind of identity crisis? I don't know. Um, but really to see that uh, no, what it does is it, it, at least for me, it was a moment of, of profound self-understanding uh, rather than um, s uh, change. That's, that's the best way I can find to articulate it. And again, I want to stress that I'm operating on maybe six hours sleep over a seven-day period right now. So <laughs> if it's not coming out totally coherently, just deal with it. Well, I'm glad that even on a very little sleep, you came back. And I'll tell you why. Um, you were gone last week, and uh, and I asked a friend of the show, um, uh, Steve White, to uh, to sit in for you. And uh, Ed, I got to tell you, um, my mom just raved about Steve's appearance on the show. She thought it was a great show. She loved the way that he explained things. She thought he brought up interesting ideas that were 
challenging her perceptions of things and that were formational for her. And, and she just really, I mean, she couldn't say enough. And I didn't, much as I also liked Steve's show, you know, I didn't want, um, I didn't want my mom to get used to the new character, you know, or other listeners for that matter to kind of get used to the new character and then forget about, forget about you, you know? So I'm, I think you came back before you sort of in a certain way might've lost your your seat at the table. I, I was, I'm not going to lie. I've been worried about this. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I said, no, we're going to do the podcast this week. Cause I thought, you know, this has been, as I'm sure we'll talk about a largish week in the news, particularly on some things that are of immediate interest to me. And I, you know, I'd hate for anyone to truly understand how apparently peripheral I am to the entire operation <laughs> here. I would, it's just not good for me, uh, to, to have this be the moment where everyone realizes they can live without me. I, I am very invested uh, in, in, no, I don't want you to say that we here at the pillar have great need of you. You are a valued member of this team. And we value you, buddy. Thanks. Thanks. Sure. Okay. No, I'm glad. Let's talk, though, about the news, because this was a big week in the news. It must have been hard for you. If To the extent that you've been paying attention to the news, it must have been hard for you to be uh, away because this is there's a lot going on. And by the way, that tension that you experienced between, like, wanting to jump into the news and having to be a dad, uh, that, in my observation, ain't going away. Yeah. You, one must uh, one must live in the tension, as it were. I suppose, but um, my hope is that you know the girls will get more more comfortable with me choosing work <laughs> <laughs> as we go on. They do. God. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. But let's talk about it, right? Because uh, a number of things happened, and uh, I want to start with the trial of Cardinal Angelo Betu and companions. Um, uh, Cardinal Betu, of course, is. Uh, a form, the former sustituto of the Vatican Secretariat of State, a person who, if you listen to this show, you know that we have been talking about for a very long time and is now facing trial uh, in the Vatican City State on charges of embezzlement, money laundering, abuse of office, and uh, various others, along with companions, including my dear friend C.C. Maragna and um, uh, uh, Gianluigi Torzi and, uh, and various other uh, figures who sort of surround the London uh, financial property deal scandal that we have, you and I have been reporting on now for, 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 for low these many years um, at the Holy See. Yeah. And it has been a, a surprisingly dramatic uh, week in the news for that because... It, it is. There was just the second and third day of the actual in the courtroom trial today. The trial began in July, but they had one hearing in July and then kind of like took a recess until October. So we had day two and day three today, and they were. Yeah, they, they were. Dramatic. I mean, there was this, when they met for the first time in August, there was this sort of procedural haggling, and the the sort of big takeaway from the August first day was um, the defense saying, well, we need better discovery, effectively. We need better access to evidence that the prosecution says they have, uh, most particularly the videotapes of Monsignor Alberto Perlasca's five, I think, voluntary depositions to... And Monsignor Perlasca is the guy who might be described as kind of, if you will, and I don't mean this pejoratively, the stool pigeon of the whole affair, yeah. in that he is the fellow who um, worked alongside Betchu and um, and and Torzi and Mincioni and probably saw C.C. Maragna at the coffee machine or the water cooler. Uh, oh, also worked alongside our friend Enrico Crosso. We'll talk about him. But Perlaska has not been indicted. And um, it seems that part of the reason Perlaska has not been indicted is because he voluntarily went to the Vatican City State's prosecutors um, a as their investigation was going on and just started talking. Spilling his guts. And That's right. there's been some haggling over whether or not the tapes that they made of him giving these 
sua sponte depositions to police and prosecutors could be made available in their entirety to the defense team. Now the defense team is saying, of course, you have to give this to us. And the um, prosecutors are saying, well, no, we can't. And for a number of reasons, first of all, it's a common legal reality in Italy and therefore in Vatican City that if you're going to circulate a video of a of a statement like this, it's freely given. It has to be um, the person who's giving the statement has to acknowledge that the, it's being video recorded and could be shared at the time it's being done. And that wasn't the case in this because he was, you know, they basically said, well, can we video this so we can come up with a good transcript and everything else? Um, and, you know, the idea of recording the statements was so they could produce a summary document of what he had told them and then he would sign off on that. And that's what's in evidence. So in other words, that those were the conditions under which he consented to being videotaped is they said, look, we just want to videotape this so we can make good notes and then we'll hand over those notes. Exactly. And and then the defense is saying, hey, you have a video. We need to see that video because you're going to use stuff from that video in order to run your prosecution. Exactly. And so and there was a compromise offered back in September where the prosecutor said, well, we don't trust the defense lawyers to have the tapes. We think they'll be leaked. We think that this will be used to, you know, either attack Berlaska or perhaps could be used to fuel a, a lawsuit for defamation against him in another jurisdiction. Um, so they offered a compromise of saying, well, you can come into the prosecutor's office and view the tapes in full, but we're not going to give you copies of them. And anyway, so that was the sort of thing that led up to this week's trial session, where basically the defense argued that the entire behavior of the prosecution had been um, not just unprofessional, but basically outside of the bounds of acceptable legal practice, that there had been a failure to depose some of the suspects, some of the accused, uh, failure to read them into the fullness of the charges in good time. There was an allegation that um, Cardinal Betchu had engaged in witness tampering by trying to get Monsignor Perlaska to recant or revise some of the things he apparently said. Uh, but Cardinal Betchu was not made aware of this uh, possible charge in good time. Um, and, and it's a good defense tactic, obviously, to say, oh, the prosecution is acting outside bounds. The, it's a great tactic if you want to be defensive about something to say, oh, the other guys are not upholding an ethical standard that I have um, pulled out of thin air. I mean, that's just something that people sometimes do when they're being defensive. Um, and that may well be what the defense is doing here. But in, but the defense counsel are not the only people who have criticized the prosecutors, are they? No, no. And we wrote about this extensively in um, May and June of, la of this year when Moneyval issued their report on having you know done their on-site inspection of Vatican financial institutions. And they said, basically, the prosecutorial arm of the Vatican is woefully understaffed, that mm -hmm. this is not up to um, the sort of strength it would need to be to effectively police financial crimes in the Vatican, that this is by and large a part-time gig for people, that this is, you know, if you like, uh, you know, the, and let's be clear. That Being a Vatican prosecutor is by and large a part-time. Exactly. That it's a side hustle usually for well-qualified, extremely well-qualified Italian lawyers and prosecutors and judges. But, you know, just have a opinion, Tony, the chief magistrate of the court that's hearing this case, um, Alessandro Didi, the chief prosecutor, you know, these guys are fundamentally Italian jurists who are doing a bit of moonlighting or extra hours um, for, for the Vatican. And I mean, they've both got mm -hmm. very good chops, legal chops in the Italian Republic, particularly in sort of money laundering and mob racket cases. And that's all great. Uh, it's also worth noting they have some personal history and they don't actually get along very well together. Get along together. very well. Didi and Pignatoni are not No, they've met in court several another. times on opposite sides of cases. And yeah, there's no love lost there, which I think is a complicating factor, at least at the human level here. But anyway, Moneyval were very clear that, you know, the, the Holy See might be a postage stamp of a country, but it's it's got a fully grown 
financial sector, or at least a, a financial sector that has real grown-up risks attached to it. And, and they the reason need- for that is because it's a tiny state that um, in which all of the administrative offices for the global reality of the church sit, with all of the financial things that come along with that. Exactly, and. Mm-hmm. So Moneyball has been sounding the alarm and saying, you guys need to get serious about this. I mean, it's not helped by the fact that in addition to the prosecutorial office being understaffed, you have the ASIF, formerly the AIF, the Vatican's in-house financial intelligence agency, has been, um, is basically part of this prosecution that their right. former president and former director are indicted. That is they it, are. Is, right, exactly. So, the, so they, in a certain way, are de- quasi-defendants nearly, or at least have a number of conflicts of interest. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, again, what is the entire governing apparatus of the Holy See? Where is that located? It's nested within the Secretary of State, which is basically everybody who's on trial here. Who's on trial. So that's why Moneyval criticized them. But Moneyval were not the only people to criticize the prosecutors of the Vatican City State, were they? No. Uh, there was a judge in the United Kingdom who issued a scathing um, judgment against uh, Vatican prosecutors or lawyers in actually they were basically they were UK prosecutors acting on behalf of an official legal request for assistance by Vatican prosecutors. This was earlier this year that we got the judgment, and I think we were the first to report it. I think we were. I'm I think just we were. Say it. We were. But that's the kind of thing that we love. Yeah. Anyway, what had happened was Gianluigi Torzi, who is, if you like, sort of the or suspect in all of this, and is still in London, and we'll talk about why he's still in London in a minute. Um, but while he basically fled to London, having been arrested in Vatican City was released on bail, which he reneged on. Torzi's such a, an interesting fellow because Torzi, who's the guy who was the broker of the of the deal to buy the London property building, you guys know who Torzi is, but, uh, you know, Torzi was under arrest in Vatican City State and was going to, and bail was set and he was going to pay the bail and they let him out before he paid the bail. Yeah, he's basically, yeah. he bamboozled them with a complicated series of financial instrument <laughs> orders that none of them it's paid like, out. It's like he's there for that. You know what I mean? He's there for, uh, he, he's sitting in the jail because he has the ability to say like, oh, you know, the check's coming, but I got a problem because the wire service wasn't working. And you know how it goes, but trust me, look at this face. Could I, I mean, that's what he's literally in the jail for. And he says to the jailers like, hey, you know, I, I'm trying to pay here, but everything's a little messed up. And if I could just run to the ATM, I promise I'm going to come back. I'm, I'm a good guy. And they're like, well... He says he's going to come back. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so he's so he's gone. He absconds. Yeah, he jumped bail and fled to London. Uh, and he uh, basically, the Vatican put a request in with UK prosecutors to freeze his assets in the UK uh, while he was there. And that was litigated. It was initially agreed and his assets were frozen. Then he appealed that and the court, uh, the judge. Hey, why heard, are you messing with my funds? He said. More or less. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, the UK judge who was hearing the appeal uh, of this asset freeze effectively lifted it and said that Vatican prosecutors had made uh, a number of errors and also appeared to have a number of contradictions in their evidence. And the contradictions, which we highlighted at the time, seemed to suggest Bloody that... Bloody hell, these lot don't know their ass from their elbow, I'd say. Is that what he said? No. Um, but no, what was what was interesting was the... It was... Ju- it was Judge Tony Baumgartner, I think, uh, was the UK judge. It was, indeed. But mm-hmm. uh, the, um, the the primary finding, at least my primary takeaway from his judgment, was that the prosecutors were saying, well, Tortsy committed fraud against the Holy See, and look, we can prove it. And the things that they used to prove it, he said, well, this doesn't prove that the Holy See was defrauded. This proved that the Holy See agreed to everything agreed step to by step. Agreed to let Tortsy take a lot more money than they suspected. Yeah. And that threw a whole kind of hole in the whole prosecution, because yeah. it started to look like maybe the entire narrative here, which was like Tortsy effectively bought the property for the Holy See and then and then 
you know, strong iron them before turning it over. Suddenly it looked like Torchy gave them a contract which said, hey, I'm going to buy the property and then strong arm you before turning it over. And it looked like maybe the Secretary of State signed the contract. Well, it, it, so I mean, the UK did, judge was like, yeah, the UK judge was like, hey, this um, does not prove what you think it does. So they were lambasted there and they said, well, we're going to keep working on it. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. And then what happened afterwards was charges were filed by Italian prosecutors in Rome against Torchy and some other of his confederates, which again, we covered at the time. Uh, accusing him of very similar uh, crimes right. in the Italian Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them had some overlapping financial instruments, some bad bonds, some uh, fake debt, some you know invented money, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and as part of that uh, filing and the issuing of an arrest warrant for Torzi by a Roman court, uh, Italian prosecutors basically said, look, and we've also were aware of the ongoing process in Vatican City against this guy, and it is our assessment working with Vatican prosecutors in a sort of common campaign to draw a net around this guy and his friends that, yeah, the Vatican may have signed off on a lot of the, the deals that he's accused of being fraudulent with, but they they only signed off on it because they were themselves given fraudulent legal advice about what they were signing. Right. And so that mm -hmm. seems to be how the Vatican has been trying to square the circle of, well, yeah, we approved everything line by line, but we didn't know what we were signing, which is not a and great we defense. Bad, we got bad advice and torch using cahoots. And, exactly. So, so, so that's anyway. everything that has happened. And it's the reason well, one, why... One more thing I just want, just to close off the loop on Torchy, which is, so as a result of that Italian arrest warrant, Torchy was rearrested in London and is basically currently under house arrest in the UK, yeah. awaiting ex an extradition process to the Italian Republic. I'm a man without a country here, Maron. He might have Indeed. said, "Yeah, okay." So um, th those are the reasons why, uh, d when defense counsel says the prosecutors aren't doing a very good job, it just uh, it doesn't look like just sort of another day of defense lawyers saying the prosecutors are incompetent. They've got all these footnotes in which a bunch of other people have said that the prosecutors are not really up to this up to snuff either. So when they said that on Tuesday. At the second day of hearings in the Vatican financial trial, they said, hey, judge, listen, there are all these procedural irregularities. You should you should throw out the indictments. You should effectively dismiss the charges right now because these guys don't know what they're doing. Um, the prosecutor did something very interesting. He says, well, you know what I could do is I could just start again. I mean, I could have a he, he requested effectively a mulligan saying, hey, these guys say they're all kinds of procedural irregularities. They say I haven't interviewed the defendants. They say I haven't shared with them this evidence. They say I'm relying on things that they don't have access to. You know what I'll do is I'll just just give me a pause and I'll just like fix it. And that's an unusual motion in a courtroom, isn't it? It's a very unusual motion in the courtroom. And I mean, I don't know what to make of it. Um, because on the one hand, it does seem to be a staggering admission of uh, failure to meet the highest standards of conduct by the Vatican prosecutors, which is disheartening, to say the least, if not entirely surprising. Um, on the other hand, there there is a, I think there is definitely a game of sort of bluff and double bluff going on here, where mm -hmm. it's one thing for the defense to argue and say, well, you know, our guys were never deposed and they were never really fully made aware of these charges. They'd never had a chance to put their side of the story on the record. It's like, well... Did they turn up when they were cited? Did they present themselves for interrogation to Vatican police yeah. at every opportunity? Did they, right, exactly. I don't know, flee to London and refuse to meet with people? Right. That, yeah. So they'll know. say, yeah, we'll interview him, but he's over there and he has to, he, and yeah. he's been avoiding us and we haven't been able to get him arrested and, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, it, it reminded me, it's not unlike a thing that you and I do from time to time. From time to time, you and I will get a letter from um, someone who is aggrieved by our reporting who, who says, uh, in fact, frequently some of these same fellows will get a letter from to say, some maybe, maybe some common names here, or from the attorneys of some of these same fellows who will say, "Hey, I don't like what the pillar wrote about me because um, it makes me look bad." Now they they don't usually say it's not true, 
um, or the the pillar wrote something that is not sort of verifiable and demonstrable by documents, but they say, hey, I don't like what you guys are writing because it might prejudice a, the trial by making me look guilty when you put all these facts down on paper near my name. Very right? awkward facts. Right. What are extremely, people going right. to think when they read this? Yeah, it's an extremely thing. So, you know, we, we frequently will, not frequently, but we will from time to time get letters like that from people uh, who are aggrieved by our reporting. And not just in the Vatican financial trial, in other contexts too, we frequently get letters from people, not frequently, but from time to time we get letters from subjects who say, we didn't like what you wrote about us and we think you should take it down. And and rarely is it, and we think it's untrue and this is why. I mean, that that's a different thing. And if we ever had to issue a correction, we would issue a correction. But the letter that we get do not say this is untrue and this is why they tend to say hey we don't like the fact that when you put this and this here people might think bad things about our clients right so we have you know we have worked with our attorney ordinarily to send back a response that says thanks but you know if you think something is untrue let us know otherwise we're going to continue to do our job but we usually we also do a thing at the end where we say and if you think that we have um misrepresented you um, in some way, we would remind you that we asked you for an interview on this date and this date and this date and this date. And right now, we, because in the interest of telling the truth, which we have a sincere interest in, we would remind you that we would be very glad to conduct a face-to-face interview with you at your convenience, with your client, with your client at your client's convenience at any time, because we would like to share their perspective on the whole thing as much as any other. And that's true. I'd love to share the perspective of some of these guys um, on the Vatican financial trial. It would be a huge honor for us to be able to to be able to interview some of these guys and to put put their words out there. Um, but when we say, oh, and if you don't think that you're represented, that your client's well represented, have him call us and we'll interview him. We kind of know that they're not going to do it. Uh, because these are people who, in some cases, have turned down our interview requests many, many times because they're on trial. But it's our way of saying, "Hey, you don't like uh, you don't like it. We've made ourselves available to you, and we just want to remind you of that by saying once again that we remain available to you." And it is possible, I think, that the prosecutor was sort of throwing out a similar kind of a thing. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, at least in some of them. I mean, for example, I I would be surprised to learn that Cardinal Betu hadn't made himself freely available to Vatican prosecutors. That would that would surprise me. So I don't yeah. think that's mm-hmm. the case with him. I, maybe he does have a legitimate procedural grievance about this uh, sort of out there accusation of witness tampering with regards to text message he may or may not have sent to Monsignor Perlaska and right. things like that. And maybe he wasn't read in good time. I don't know. Um, but I don't think that he has been stonewalling Vatican prosecutors necessarily. If for no other reason than we know where he lives and it's, so does the Vatican prosecutors and they're all in the same area. I'm pretty sure yeah. they could go mm-hmm. knock on his door if they wanted to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But I think some of these other guys, there is a legitimate question of, well, how available have you made yourself to this process? Right, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I'm not, can, I, I think it's possible that a bluff, a sort of bluff from the prosecutor is possible. Another thing from the prosecutors is they may just feel, they may have just felt buried in paper. I mean, the, the, a lot of these guys who are defendants are very wealthy, mm-hmm. have very good lawyers um, who are very good at taking what is well known to be an underfunded small office, trying to pull off effectively the Vatican's trial of the century on a shoestring budget and not a lot of time. And one way to do that is to absolutely bury them in paper. And the defense may feel so exasperated by motion after motion that it may in a certain way be asking the judge for a lifeline. Please don't don't throw this thing out that we've been working on. Just let us fix the problems that these guys say, because we can't possibly compete on the on the on the paper war, you know, kind of the war of motions going back and forth, because these guys have associates with salaries that are practically the size of our entire budget. Exactly. And I mean, let's be clear, the prosecutor's sort of initial document drop at the beginning of his trial was like 800 pages. Yeah. Like, it's enormous. And that's, they've had to put that together. And this is a team of 
three right. full-time, maybe with the option for two more part-time. Like this is a maximum five-person team trying to, you know, they, there are fewer people working for the prosecution than there are defendants on trial, let alone their defense teams behind them. Well, and there's one other reason that I think prosecutors may have done this offer of let us start again the investigative phase and do all this stuff. For some and of the, let's be clear, for some of for the... For some of the things, right? But let some us of do them are some continuing of this, on as normal. Yeah, let us do some of this investigative phase again, right? Uh, there may be one other reason why prosecutors made that offer. And um, it might have been seen, it's possible that that was seen as a graceful exit from the field of battle. Hey, yeah, we'll f- we'll fix it. And then they could sort of let it, if they felt absolutely defeated or they had the sense they were not going to win or they felt they were in over their heads, it may have been a face-saving effort to say that they were going to continue their prosecution while effectively um, accepting that the judge would have otherwise dismissed the charges. That, I think, is a possibility. It certainly is. Uh, but, it's not a welcome one, but it's a real one. But it doesn't matter. Because on Wednesday, what did the judge do? The judge said, fine, go for it. In, in part. In he part. said, yes, do some of those things, but we're coming back to this courtroom on November 17th. Yeah. The trial right. is not going away. Um, right. Most of the charges, if I've done my internal math correctly, because you know, 10 defendants and multiple charges for each one. But yeah. I, think, mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say most of the charges are remaining right on track, carrying on, see you in November, this is happening. Right. There are some, a minority of the charges that said, fine, go back and do more depositions or whatever and refile and you know, we'll, we'll restart that when we need to. But this trial is not going away, which is great. Right. And If so, the judge had wanted to accept sort of that they were laying down their sword, that this was a motion of surrender, mm-hmm. he would have said, yes, go ahead, reinvestigate those things and um, we'll, we'll check in um, in the new calendar year to determine when you, when the prosecution has handed things to the defense and is prepared for another. If he said, we'll check in in the next calendar year, we could have just closed the book on this thing uh, and thought, okay, this is probably not going to reopen because they don't have the money or the means or the manpower to keep doing it. But the judge effectively told them, you have to stay on track. Yeah. And I mean, that in itself is encouraging. And I mean, it's interesting. I, I just want to zoom out for a few minutes here and talk about sort of what's at stake wider than the actual charges against these individuals here because um so at the granular level you've got these 10 people who are facing these charges and that's important that's a question of probity that's a question of can justice actually be served in vatican city on financial crimes at the most senior level and that is a huge question Mm -hmm. sort of one level up pulled back from that is um does the is it possible to mount a credible prosecution for this sort of thing do you know does the prosecutorial office have the manpower does the court have the chops does you know can this actually function is the vatican a credible financial center or not can, you know can they be allowed at the you know the grown-ups table uh, you know in, in things right. like money vol and institutions like that um but pulled back even from that, and you wrote something about this earlier this week, which I thought was extremely spot on, um, is that at the heart of the original defense argument that was made on Tuesday, which is to say that this is basically a kangaroo court, that the way the Vatican works, where that's what the is, defense is alleging. The defense is alleging this is not a legitimate courtroom. Yeah, okay, the defense go. alleged that this is not a legitimate courtroom because the judges all swear loyalty to Pope Francis. The prosecutors all swear loyalty to Pope Francis. This is an absolute monarchy, and there is no supranational recourse to be made outside of the the closed circuit of the Vatican's internal systems, and that this is basically trial by one man, that this is all papal fiat, that the prosecution, the judges, everything, this is all basically power extending from the executive of Pope Francis, which is true. There is a unified governance in the Holy See that the Pope is the supreme executor, legislator, and 
supreme judge. Now, that's not uncommon in many legal jurisdictions. It might be foreign to the idea of, you know, Western democracies that have as uh, a sort of cardinal virtue, the separation of powers. But, you know, this is not unheard of in even um, some... Now, in your Europe. country, for example, I mean, it's 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 a figurehead, but um, your queen, Queen Elizabeth II, um, is is both the chief judiciary and the chief executive of the realm. Is that not true? At least, in yeah. And, and, the, and the extent to which the the powers can be blended and have been blended on paper constitutionally is, you know, it, it is a relative novelty that they have such a thing as called the quote unquote Supreme Court in the UK, mm-hmm. which many legal scholars believe is an aberration and silly and doesn't actually work constitutionally. Right. Um, but for a long time, the Supreme Court was just a subset of the House of Lords. It was part of the legislature, that that's how unified the, the whole because thing was. Because the legislature runs the country on behalf of the queen and, run, and part well, of running the The legislature is, is literally the queen in parliament, that right. it is, mm-hmm. you know, the head together with the body. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so this argument is, I mean, in theory, it's true that, you know, yeah, the prosecutors and the judges all work for the Pope. Sure. Um, too bad. That, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But where this could be very, very tricky is this. If... And I never expected them to get any joy to have Pinatone rule and say, oh, you're right. This is a kangaroo court. I'm a fake judge. You're absolutely right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That was Mm -hmm. never going to happen. But what could have happened is if the trial went ahead. And what still could happen, by the way, this is the long Hail Mary. This is the long Hail Mary. And I'm convinced that there is pipe being laid for this eventual play, assuming there are convictions, which is this. We are mixing our metaphors dramatically. Dramatically. But I am very sleep deprived. So that's just how it's going to be. Um. No one can serve jail time in the Vatican City because there's only like two cells and they're there basically to store pickpockets for, you know, a day or an afternoon. I think the former papal butler during the Vatican Leaks trial did a month there and that was like maximum capacity. But there is no jail storage capacity for 10 defendants, let alone of mixed genders, which is what we have um, in the people facing trial here. Like they can't, they don't have a jail that can house these people if there were convictions handed down. And under the Lateran Treaty and subsequent treaties with the Italian Republic, anyone who's convicted of a crime and sentenced to jail time in the Vatican does their time in an Italian prison. The guy who Mm -hmm. shot JP2 went to an Italian jail. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how it works under the national treaties. But and this was a major argument made by the defense on Tuesday, which is that the real problem is there is no recourse outside of the Vatican for these people in legal avenues. It's saying, in other words, we, we that they don't participate in the European Court of Human Rights. Exactly, they haven't signed the they haven't signed onto the European Court of Human Rights. We can't appeal outside of the national jurisdiction to a supranational judicial structure, which is a crazy argument. I mean, n- not just for this case, it's a crazy articulation of sort of the principles of law and order and sovereign states in the West. Yes. It, effectively, it is effectively an argument that says um, European nations are in fact subordinate states to this thing called this thing called Europe. I, I don't even think the European Court of Human Rights is properly the EU. No, it's, um, it's, it's a very it's, muddy... Um, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but what it is effectively saying is sovereign states do not have the right to... to sort of run their courts as they see fit. Because actually there is a, a mechanism of appeal in the Vatican City State's trial. And one could ultimately, it seems to me, appeal his case to the Bishop of Rome and the Roman Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, the Servant of the Servants of God, um, His Excellency Francesco I, if one wished to do so. Um, so there is a mechanism of appeal that ends at the sort of level of sovereignty of the nation. So what if Bechu et al.'s lawyers are preparing a set of arguments so that they can say to Italy, this is effectively a kangaroo court, what they're asking them to do is effectively render a judgment on the legitimacy of, um, of the judiciary of an, another sovereign state, yes. and effectively and- to call them a rogue state. That's a, that's, a, that's a bold move, Cotton. 
It's a bold move, but it, I, I'm, I'm not at all convinced it wouldn't pay off for them. There are lots of people in the European Union superstructure. There are lots of people in Italian politics. There are lots of people in international diplomacy generally at the UN who would love to see an end to the Holy See's sovereignty Sovereign, as we right, have. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. would love to see it reduced to the status of something like the Principality of Monaco. Right. Or, you know, something like that. Uh, effectively, and, a kind, and, and, and force it into becoming effectively a kind of vassal of this thing called Europe. Exactly. That's this is very much a legal argument that there is a very very huge group of people on the sidelines saying, "Let us in, coach. We will we will run with this ball." And this is what and, I think people might think that we're crazy, but it's it, it seems to me it's there in the briefs that this is it's a, not po- crazy. a possible this argument is, that can be made. Yeah, they are telegraphing that this is where it will go. If there are convictions in this trial, there will be appeals filed in an Italian court saying you cannot honor the Lateran Treaty for the Italian Republic to imprison these people because they were convicted in a jurisdiction which does not conform to the Italian notion of justice. Because there's no recourse to the European Italian Court of notion of justice at this point says one one has the right to some sort of super sovereign appeal beyond yes. uh, beyond <laughs> beyond the particular biases of a particular culture with all its um, with all its prejudices and, uh, and and other things one has a right to something um, to, to an appeal in some sort of abstract pure um, Lockean arbiter of justice called Europe yeah and believe me it's pretty ugly I've seen <laughs> I've seen ECHA mm-hmm. um, yeah. ECHR I should say judgments and it's it's pretty grim right. but anyway th- this is the play that will be run and th- what will happen is if that is successful in the Italian Republic if they can get an Italian court to say no you're right the Italian government cannot honor the latter and treaty to imprison these people because what we have here is Italians on trial in another jurisdiction whose judicial system we do not recognize as credible and in conformity with our own standards of justice then the You've just cut a slash right through the middle of the Lateran Treaty, which is the Ur document for the for the Holy See having sovereign status in international law. That is a this is some high stakes poker. Yeah, is it a stretch to think that it will get there? I think the bigger stretch is to get to convictions with real jail time. If you get that, I think the from there to everything else we just outlined is not a stretch at That's all. That's what I'm saying. What they may be doing, what the attorneys of the defense may be doing, which I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you do it? Well, I don't know if you would do it if you were the defense counsel, because I, I think you would appreciate the repercussions of what you're doing, and I don't think you'd like them, but wouldn't many attorneys do it? But um, it, it seems that there is a certain way in which what the attorneys are doing is setting up the bumpers and saying, hey... This is bumper ball, which is a kind of bowling with bumpers. You know, bowling is right. It's an American game in which we, um, in which they're saying this. These are the boundaries of what you can do because um, if you move a chess piece over here, we'll move a chess piece over here, and we're going to take your queen, mm-hmm. and then we're going to put you in check. Well, and this is, I think, if you really want to get into the sort of um, the sort of psychological criminology of the Vatican and how this all plays into it, is let's be clear. Who is effectively, as, as a single legal person, on trial in all of this? It's the Vatican Secretary of State. That These are mm-hmm. all officials at or collaborators with, or former officials and collaborators with the Secretary of State. That is the department on trial here. Plus or minus two guys from the AAF. But actually one of them, we we broke the story. He's also being paid and working for the right. Secretary we're, of State at the same co- time, yeah, exactly. which is a gigantic mm-hmm. conflict of interest. But anyway, yes. mm-hmm. um, these are all Secretary of State guys. They are all on trial. The Secretary of State is the one that sits over the entire governorate of the Vatican City State. 
the Secretary of State's number one priority in the entire universe, I would say in some cases, perhaps even more than the spread of the gospel, is to preserve the sovereignty and freedom of the Holy Well, I don't State. think they would draw a distinction between those two things. I they think wouldn't they would say well, the spread of the gospel the, and preserving the, inter- you know, uh, one is necessary for the other. That. Right. It's essential to the proclamation of the gospel is the, and it's true, actually. I, yeah, well, no, it's absolutely it's true. true. Uh, it's absolutely true. true. The Holy See has to be independent. The Pope cannot be a sovereign, cannot be a citizen of anywhere. He has well, to have. Well, here, here's what I would say. Is it true? No. Um, it is not sort of an article of faith that the Pope. Oh, no. Uh, no. Right. As an article of practicality for the good function. In the contemporary world, is it necessary for the church to continue to operate in the way that she operates around the world that she have the sovereignty of the Holy See and that that allows her to be in communication with bishops in various parts of the world through diplomatic channels, and that allows her to um, assert the right of religious practice around the world. Yes, it absolutely is. I mean, although the church is by its very nature um, not subordinate to any civil entity, um, it is not constant with the history of the church to say, and therefore the church has always been free to operate as a sovereign entity in the world. Right. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The church has always claimed for itself sovereignty by virtue of its divine founding. But mm-hmm. the the diplomatic but the sovereignty. first couple centuries that led to lions and yes, it led to lions. Readings, yeah. But yeah, but the reason the church insists on the temporal sovereignty of the Holy Father and independence of the Holy See is because if you're going to have a global institutional church, this is essential again, not as a function of divine and Catholic faith. This is not an article of theological truth, but as a simple practicality for that church to function in a way which allows the church to peaceably and harmoniously interact mm-hmm. with the societies around it. It, it needs this. So the, it, it's not to say that the sovereignty of the Holy See is a, you know, a, a sort of sordid concern. It is a real concern, and it's an important thing to, to look after. But my point is, it's the Secretary of State's guys are on trial. It's the Secretary of State which sits over the entire prosecutorial and judicial mechanism of all of this. And it's the Secretary of State's sort of prime directive, which is being threatened by the defense lawyers as a sort of nuclear option at the end of all of this. That is a hell of a headwind for this yeah, it's the, process it's the bumpers, to be sailing. It's into. the bumpers in the bowling lane, I'm telling you. It is the bumpers yeah. in the bowling lane. And we talk a lot. I think I wonder if people think that we're um, being dramatic or if it's just good copy or something like that, for us to talk a lot about the sovereignty of the Holy See as if it is something that is under threat. But the fact of the matter is, um, since the unification of Italy, which was not that long ago, um, mm-hmm. the sovereignty of the Holy See has been, uh, the sovereignty of the church and international relations has been, in a certain way, hanging on by a thread. Now, it's true that in more recent years, it's been affirmed by the establishment of dip- a for- full and formal diplomatic relations with, with numerous countries, including the United States of America. You know, it's true that the Holy See still participates in and various international bodies like the United Nations and as an observer in the European Union. I mean, th- these things are true, but there are a lot of people, I, th- I think it's probably true for several centuries now, there are indeed a lot of people who think that the sovereignty of the Holy See um, in international law is a very bad thing, um, perpetuates a very bad thing, something which in their mind is a very bad thing called sort of religion um, and perpetuates the notion that religious entities should have a place of privilege over and above things which they perceive to be more important, whether it's NGOs or corporations or whatever, um, uh, or the governments themselves. Um, and um, there are a number of people who have who, who say, well, look, the church's sovereignty um, has been used uh, and abused um, already. The church is not a responsible actor in international law. People point to sort of cardinal law uh, of Boston sort of fleeing to the Holy See, ostensibly to avoid prosecution here in the United States, to say, look, 
the ch- the church as a as a sovereign actor in international law is not always a, a good faith actor, um, and so have been sort of hammering away at that. And I think there are indeed a lot of people, especially um, w- with a rise of sort of um, wholesale institutional disaffiliation, who would say this is a vestige of another time when kings and popes roamed the earth and you know fought the Moors. A lot of people would say um, this is no longer. Um, ought no longer be a part of modern geopolitics. Yeah. And and, and again, the, the Holy See is a participant under sufferance of mm-hmm. institutions like the United Nations and the EU and things like that. They do not enjoy a majority welcome in those right. institutions. That's right. They are yeah. there because the, the people who would like to see the sovereignty of the Holy See reduced to something like Monaco or San Marino you know, where it's a sort of paper principality and isn't this cute, but everyone is actually reduced to something like, I think the World Council of Churches is a kind of, has is a kind of quasi, you know, is allowed to send somebody to kind of sit in at the UN and watch, but not in a way, not in a way that has any sort of diplomatic meaning. Now, the Holy See is, a, is an observer at the, at the UN anyway, but not in a way that has um, the same kind of diplomatic meaning and weight. Um, the World Council of Churches is not able to issue diplomatic passports and have diplomatic relations with countries and have ambassadors. And I think it is in the, not in the way of a microstate, which we all sort of think is cute, but in the way of a sort of religious body that hangs around, the Anglican Communion, but not something that people take seriously as an international actor is precisely what I think many people would like to see the Holy See reduced to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, and what I, I maintain what they're looking for, the people who would like to see this happen, is they're just looking for a good hook to hang it on. Right. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for something that they can use. And having, and again, this is, if you like, the, the sort of nuclear option lurking in the back of the defense arguments, but it's there, is if you make us, we will go to an Italian court and ask them to unpick the Lateran Treaty on the grounds that you do not have a credible judiciary. Right. Watch us do it. So will that play into this trial? Um, it's already being it's already being stuck into motions and memos. Um, how will it impact things? The shall See, right now what we know is that the prosecutors are sort of redoing some examination. They've been ordered again to hand over the Perlaska tapes, which they were already ordered to hand over and they didn't, but they're ordered again to hand over the Perlaska tapes. They're going to try to depose people who wouldn't be, who wouldn't, who, who, who they didn't depose in the past, whether it's because they weren't available or they didn't make efforts to or whatever. They're going to try and depose some people. There's a date for November 17th. I, uh, I'd like to go, but the next day, uh, November 18th, is Mrs. Flynn's 40th birthday. And I feel that I ought throw Mrs. Flynn some sort of a 40th birthday bash. And so I probably will not go to the trial, uh, the next hearing on November the 17th, which means you ought considered, of course, you will have a six-week-old baby. Um, but, you know, we'll work that out. We'll, we'll figure out what we can do. Yeah, we'll figure Of out. course, there's there's the possibility that there will be a oh. bishop's conference meeting right around that time. I think the bishop's conference meeting, I can't remember the dates, but I thought it was like right before that. It is right before that, I think. Yeah. You know what I could do? is take Mrs. Flynn to Rome for her 40th birthday, but oh, hang on, I just got to go to this meeting. Well, no, 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 not oh, hang on, I just got to do it. That's where you arrange with, say, a friend <laughs> of ours, a private tour of some fantastic artistic installations yeah. and a nice rosé filled. This is just for you some girl time. You're going to do this for a couple of hours. Have a great time, honey, and I'm going to meet you afterwards for dinner. And don't worry about me. I'll amuse myself. I'll find something. Yeah. Yeah. We shall see. Okay. 
So, uh, having talked about the Vatican trial and knowing that things will kind of uh, heat up on November the 17th at the next uh, hearing, or at least we'll find out what's going on at the next hearing, this is a very, this is a trial in slow motion, by the way. I mean, for people who think that, that it's going to kind of be like the OJ trial, where like it starts being on TV and then it's just going, 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 it's a trial in slow motion, which if you're accustomed to the legal processes connected to the church, you're used to. But uh, for many people, I suspect it is uh, a little bit um, surprising. Well, the fact that there are in-person meetings where people are actually speaking is, you know, already a huge like fireworks. Like, oh boy, this is the, this is the really exciting version. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Because many, many, even criminal trials in the in the um, canonical side of the Holy See's judiciary, which is to say, at the courts of the CDF or the Apostolic Signature, criminal trials in those places are trials effectively on paper, ninety-nine percent of the time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Another thing happened while you were out that is of some significance and has, I think, made many headlines and also been uh, of great difficulty to many people, and it is the release of a report um, from the Republic of France um, uh, about um, the history of clerical sexual abuse in that country. Uh, Ed, have you had much of a chance to read about this report? I have read some of the reporting on it, but I have definitely not been able to dive into the into the nitty-gritty of the, of the detail of the original report itself, no. Well, the report I is was 20... shocked by the headlines, that's for sure. Yes, the report is 2,500 pages and in French, which is to say I have made precious little headway into the fullness of the report, but I've been trying. Um, and I have been spending a lot of time um, in the methodological summaries, and the, they, they did about a 50-page, I want to say it's about 50 pages, uh, a 40-page um, kind of English summary with some appendices and things like that. So I've been digging into those things and it's a very interesting thing it has been it has been i've heard from a lot of catholics who have said well that the news out of france and this report on the history of clerical sexual abuse in, in that country is um is devastating and um has sort of uh, welled up in them all of the emotions that they felt during the sort of um summer of shame as people call it here in the united states in 2018 when we dealt with mccarrick and pennsylvania grand jury and these kinds of things um of course, this kind of um, the issues related to those things have not gone away, and the church continues to work on them. And um, I think they feel more immediate to us because we they're so frequently in our in our work. Um, um, but for many people, this is a, a moment in which they rise up because the headlines are very dramatic. The, the sort of top line summary of the report is that two hundred and sixteen thousand children uh, would have been abused by priests. Um, de- what they say the report actually says priests, deacons, monks, or nuns. And by monks, I actually think they mean not just people who have made monastic vows, but people who are mendicants and other kinds of religious. So let's say um, at the hands of clerics and religious. So so the the, the top-line report is that 216,000 children were abused um, between 1950 and 2020 at the hands of clerics and religious. And that is a sobering number, um, 216,000. By comparison, that is, um, I, I want to say that the John Jay study of clerical sexual abuse in the United States identified somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 victims of sexual abuse over the course of a a similar time period um, in the U.S. I'm saying that number, 12,000, off the top of my head, but it feels about right to me. Um, So by comparison, this is a bigger number, um, a a, a significantly bigger number, and and that has been um, hard for a lot of people. The the estimates are that perhaps is uh, perhaps somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,200 priests and religious uh, have been aggressors, have been abusers. And then the report says that probably um, if you add in people who are abused in sort of church environments by people who are not priests or religious, so people abused at 
a Catholic scout troop or a Catholic school by a layperson or something like that, um, the number of child victims rises to 330,000 for the period between 1915-2020. And that is a sobering number. That's a lot of people. It's almost an impossible number to conceptualize, the, the, you know, for the time period we're talking about. Well, I have been trying to conceptualize it, and I've also been trying to understand it. I wrote about this a little bit in the new, in a, my newsletter this week, but if you didn't read that, or if you did and you want to hear more about it. I did read it, your newsletter this week. Okay. Well, then you already know that I, I did a little bit of, you know, just reading into this. What really has not, I think, sort of featured prominently in the reporting is that that number is an estimate. Um, it, is, it, is an, it is an estimate that's based on basically the rate of sexual abuse in French society on the whole. And then um, some act, some concrete information about incidences of sexual abuse within the context of the church. So um, the the uh, the researchers who who made this report, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the researchers who made this report were able to identify through interviews um, uh, twenty seven hundred abuse victims between nineteen fifty and twenty twenty, and then they were able to identify another forty eight hundred through their research in church archives and police reports and press and stuff like that. So, so they identified in in the aggregate, we'll say somewhere close to eight thousand. I, I think it's probably seventy five hundred or eight thousand um, victims of child sexual abuse by clerics or religious between nineteen fifty and, and twenty twenty. And then what they did is they looked at sort of over they they looked at some national data, national surveys, overall trends of of sexual abuse in in France, to come up with this number that's sort of like by which they estimated two hundred and sixteen thousand. And actually, what they what they really said is we have a high degree of confidence that the real number is somewhere between two hundred and seventy thousand and one hundred and sixty five thousand. And two hundred sixteen thousand is right in the middle. But they what they really say is we have a high degree of confidence that the real number of people who are abused by clerics and religious in France between 1950 and 2020 is 270,000 and 165,000, which is, which is a very large, you know, range. But the low end of that 165,000 is still a very large number of children. And um, the reason I point out it's an estimate is because um, I think there are questions about whether or not they're not being a sociologist, but having spent some time reading through this, I think it would be helpful if they were able to come closer to fleshing that out. I, I want to be clear. Um, clerical sexual abuse is, is an extraordinary scourge. One incident of clerical sexual abuse is, is one incident too many and absolutely inimical to everything that the gospel is. Um, and at the same time that we can say that, and, and having spent the past few years talking with victims and their families, it becomes more clear to me than ever why abuse in the context of the church is especially is it is an especially egregious kind of thing because it because it, we're made for the worship of god and um the clerical sexual abuse of a child can rob a whole community of um of uh, of its trust in the thing for which it was made which is the worship of god and that's uh that's heartbreaking um with that said i i'm i i, I wish that there was more here than the estimate and i hope that there will be more research on it because I don't know how, you know, I think that, I think that range, 165,000 to 270,000, it's a pretty big range. And, um, you know, I think it's worth sort of looking at whether that can be fleshed out more, especially because the same report estimates that there are probably between 2,900 and 3,200 priest or religious abusers. And what that means is that um, the report is essentially uh, making the conjecture that each priest abuser between 1970, between 1950 and 2020 abused somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 children. 
Um, and that's a very big number. In the United States, the report that was done in the United States, the John Jay report, found that I, I want to say 60% of priests who were accused of clerical sexual abuse were accused of abusing one child and um, and a small percentage of those who received an allegation were accused of abusing more than 10 children. So this aggregate number of six, uh, uh, somewhere around 67 is very large. And the report actually recognizes this. They say that's a, we realize that's a really sort of high number of children per aggressors, um, but uh, it's kind of the best that we can do. And, uh, and so all I'm saying is I think there are questions. I, I think for me, there are unanswered questions about how certain we can be about those estimates. And I think it's important to recognize that they are estimates. I don't well, mean that to diminish the thing. I just think no. that's, yeah. If you put out a number that big and the numbers break down to, as you said, this kind of huge um, ratio of abusers to victims over a period of time, uh, we, we do need to have a very, or at least as good a grab on how we get to that number and how firm it is as possible. Not, you know, not because it's too big a number and we should revise it down because, you know, this makes the church look bad, nothing like that. But for, because either way, th these numbers are going to be and are being sort of, you know, used in headlines and asserted more or less as, as if they were hard numbers rather mm -hmm. than, you know, the product of this is our best working estimate. Uh, and if they're going to be treated as hard numbers, we need to know how much confidence we can have in treating them credibly like that. But also, I mean, to be clear, if if that number is even close to accurate, we need to know that. What that problem is. If that number is close to accurate, we need to know how on earth that yeah. was the thing. And then we need to ask, if that number is close to accurate, which I think there are questions there, but if it is, we need to ask, have we radically underestimated things yeah. here? Which I, I don't think, and I, I a part of my concern about the number is, um, it amplifies the degree of suspicion to which all under which all priests are cast. Now, the report says we estimate that, you know, probably 3% of priests between 1950 and 2020 committed some active abuse. And it, the John Jay report estimates that 4% of priests in the United States were the subject of an allegation. So, you know, I mean, it's actually a lower percentage who they kind of are connecting to. But I still think that number is the thing that resonates. And it, mm -hmm. it, it casts priests under aspersion. It suggests a, an appalling... Um, pattern of a, a failure to supervise at a level that is just like demonically depraved to the nth power far beyond what we ever would have perceived and if it's true and it's consistent in other places good god but again i think it really bears further study because it because of the implications of it yeah we we need to know either way we need to know because either the problem is much bigger than we have been suspecting or estimating and we really have to wrestle with that or it's um or it's unworkably big because you know it, it and for me, I th it seems to me, it seems to me like either there were more abusers or the estimate is high just based yeah. upon what we... I, I find, yeah, that's the, that's the numbers yeah. that don't make sense to me is yeah. I find it hard to believe they think there's a lower percentage abuse rate among the clergy of France and than then in the United number, States, right. but a phenomenally higher number of victims yeah. per abuse. I mean, that... Exactly. It's, yeah, something's not... I mean, either there's something, something to me really demonic that. going on in France or we have a wider either or that or it's a bad number and we need to you know get it a little yeah, bit yeah. closer again so that we can make sure that we're dealing with it in the best way possible or if that's all true maybe our numbers are wrong elsewhere and we need to check on that either way it's yeah i yeah, entirely I mean, agree with you. okay um but what is here's here's the other side of the report and the thing that i think is really interesting in fact i was working on writing about this when we started the show i'll put something up today it's thursday um the report is fascinating to me in another way. The commission, so basically in 2018, after McCarrick and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury et al., the, the French bishops and the French sort of conference of major superiors of men and women, which they have won together, um, 
so basically French religious superiors and French bishops said, we need to do a study. So they, um, they got this guy who's like this sort of long respected um, civil servant. He was on the Council of State, which is a thing that sounds actually more important than it is, um, and some other sort of bureaucratic institutions in France. But he's kind of a big deal in sort of French government, uh, as French governmental bureaucrats go. Um, and uh, yeah, he is an, I think he's an A-team French governmental bureaucrat to be sure. Um, all, all American, and um, you know what I mean. At any rate, they got this guy and they said, put together a commission and, uh, and study the scope of the problem, give us recommendations, do the whole, you know, do the whole nine yards. And he put together a commission of like 21 people who are experts in various things. And they got a bunch of, um, you know, other people who are going to be kind of associates and consultants. And they all were volunteers because they didn't want to take money from the church, but the church paid for all the parts of the thing. So the church spent like 3 million bucks on this study. Uh, it took them like, um, it took them like more than two years. And, um, and, and then they put this report together. Now, the part of it that I find the most fascinating is the access that they had. Because when the French bishop said, we need to study this, every French diocese but one said, okay, look in the archives. Every French religious institute but one said, okay, look in our files. And that is so different from the response that we have seen here in the United States. So the John Jay report, which was published in 2004, which was the thing the bishops called for after the 2002 scandal, on one of the first pages, they say, hey, one of our real methodological issues with studying the scope of sexual abuse in the church in the United States is that we know we're not going to get to look at the archives of the dioceses, so we're going to have to find other ways to try and study it. It's true. Um, And we have sort of internal things that happen in the church now, the sort of internal audits of child protection policies and things like that. But the, the kind of access that this commission had to the archives of the church in France is unbelievable. And as a journalist who says frequently on this show that there are real consequences to the fact that there's no Freedom of Information Act in the Holy Mother Church, I am truthfully extraordinarily encouraged by that kind of transparency on the part of the French bishops and the French religious peers too. But it puts into, um, it, it puts by juxtaposition into harsh light the ongoing reluctance of American bishops to offer even a modicum of that kind of transparency. Now, the American bishops would say, okay, fine, and plaintiff's lawyers would say, and attorneys who listen to this show, and chantry officials who listen to this show, and bishops who listen to this show, you'll all say, okay, fine, but Shady, you don't understand. You're just asking us to, like, open up our stuff for litigation. And, and actually, I do understand that you're opening up, that, that you'd be asking your stuff up for litigation. I, I will tell you, I can think of people who are in dioceses um, that have been um, both indicted criminally, so now you know who I'm talking about, and um, gone bankrupt who say, who might say, those are some of the best things that happened in, to our diocese because they transformed us from fear of those things in, and, and th- that dictating our response to these issues to um, having seen the worst happen and therefore being able to do the response that we thought was the right response. So, I mean, you know, I, I would say that's true. Now, I, I'm not sort of saying, oh, bishops, it would be great if all your dioceses went bankrupt or you were... Di-. I mean, I don't think that's even true, but I would say... Um, the openness of the French bishops to a third-party commission investigating things in their own records has produced something, many parts of which will be extraordinarily useful to them. And the recommendations from this body will be all the more useful because they will have seen and understood the internal dynamics uh, between bishops and his chancery advisors, between bishops and his priests, um, rather than sort of speculating about these things and often speculating nefariously, right? What we saw in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, for example, which did have access to a lot of records, but had it by subpoena and subpoena and subpoena. But what we saw there was the the presumption of um, of sort of nefarious um, and malicious 
you know, cover up and sort of the, the, the pictures of bishops that emerge in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report is like a bishop like in a mountain lair petting a cat and cackling hilariously while his plan to cover, you know, and it is not my experience of observing the internal records of dioceses that though that that is correspondent to the reality of the way in which the church makes mistakes with regard to handling these issues. I think it's far more often a misplaced sense of paternal charity towards the priest, a sort of blind spot towards the victim because the priest is more present, the priest is more well known, the priest is someone who's on your, you know, you have an you have these sets of concrete and defined obligations to um, the way in which um, victims are often perceived mostly or have been at various times perceived mostly as sort of potential plaintiffs and the way in which that frames things. All of those things, which are reflective actually in the records of dioceses and their communication, all of those things factor into the problem. And having a third party be able to assess, hey, this is actually how you guys get yourself into trouble. Um, if if the truth is, you know, uh, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And what we really want to learn is how do we respond when these things happen as much as we want to learn how do we keep them from happening, which we should want to learn. But if we also want to learn how do we respond when these things happen, third-party assessment of what that internal communication looks like is critical. And that's something that it seems happened in the French report. And it seems to me to just sort of be juxtaposed with us sort of knocking on the door of American Chancery saying like, hey, could we see the financial records of Cardinal McCarrick's slush fund and being told like, stop asking questions, why don't you like the church? And that, that juxtaposition, or stop asking questions, why do you want to hurt the church? Stop beating that drum. You know, hey, do you think we could just know like what bishops Cardinal McCarrick like wrote checks to and maybe like if anybody at the finance council ever audited that and like, do you think we could just like kind of understand which bishops Cardinal McCarrick was like writing letters to the nuncio to urge promotion for and if they're still an active minister stop trying to hurt the church that was in 2018 like that attitude it seems to me um, is not the same as an attitude which says yeah come look at my files now i think there have been dioceses which have said to attorney generals in their state yeah we'll make an agreement with you that you can look in our files um whether they've done so because they didn't want to get subpoenaed for them or whether they've done so out of um you know uh, a genuine effort for reform is uh, a matter of subjective judgment, I think. But the problem with attorney general's investigations, it seems to me, is that attorney general's investigations are principally looking for things to charge, and they're not principally conducted by people who are the team of experts in the various disciplines that are related to these things, including people with expertise in sort of ecclesiastical life. And so attorney general's investigations have a limited sort of set of lessons that can be learned from them. So bishops who have made efforts to turn over their records to attorney general's investigations, I think, should be recognized or commended for like having the right intention by being open to doing that. But the French report, even while I think there are some real questions about the thing, also, uh, you know, about these estimates, also says to me um, that's a degree of openness to transparency that has not yet been emulated in the United States. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and again, I just to echo what you said earlier, there there are dioceses that have gone bankrupt, and archdioceses which have gone bankrupt, and I think they have, it has been a, I don't want to say a purifying experience, but I think it has... A purgative experience, I think yeah, it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's been, and a healing one for for how the diocese does business, quote-unquote, both in terms of administration and also in terms of living the reality of a, a post-Macaric American church. I, I think it's very important. And, you know, the other thing I think is a reality is bankruptcy is coming for the vast majority, if not all, of American dioceses anyway. I it hope can that's come not true. Through. I don't. I don't think that's well. I'm, okay, that's your thing. Well, I, I'm eventually. I'm not saying. Okay, maybe not necessarily through litigation or bad management, but I mean. But just because of institutional secularization, institutional disaffiliation, the yeah, fact that the, few people you know, the, the, the institutional footprint is does not match with the income in most places, and the demographics are not moving in the right direction in the vast majority of places. 
And I just think that part of a healthy church in the United States in the 21st century is going to involve a serious look at, well, how concerned are we with the preservation of an institutional footprint and um, you know, concerns like, well, you know, can can we make it through bankruptcy and things like that? And, you know, I think that the, the sooner people embrace the sort of radical tr- institutional transformation that's coming anyway, I think the more liberating that will be and the faster we will see a reinvention of the diocesan and parochial models in this country that will allow um, the church to better respond to the, the pastoral realities on the ground now. You know, the thing that we're, what I'm trying to say is the thing that everyone is trying very, very hard to fight off. It's like, it's coming anyway. There's going to be a massive institutional revision yeah, yeah. for the mm-hmm. church in this country. And I mean, that's going to happen. It's going to happen one way or another. It's like, why not steer into the swerve, man? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's something that we're going to, I honestly, I'm not just saying this kind of like, but I do think um, the new story of the next 10 years in the church is going to be the degree to which we steer into the swerve or we don't with regard to an imbalance between religious practice and sort of institutional footprint. Yeah. Listen, man, you need to get some sleep. (laughs) Have I been at all coherent? I really don't know. No, it was very fine coherent wise. But I mean, I think they say, they tend to say like, oh, sleep when the baby's sleeping is something that they say. Yeah, that's a charming thought. (laughs) What I just say is toughen up, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, my friend. Um, Always a pleasure. And, uh, um, please be assured of our prayers. And I, when are you coming back from, um, when are you coming back? I, I'm I'm assuming Monday, I guess. Oh, a week? I, I thought you were going to take two weeks. I, I really wanted to take two weeks, but I feel bad leaving you with the bag and everything. No, That's... you're not leaving me with the bag. And we have we have Michelle and we have freelancers and things are fine. And I think you should take the right amount of paternity leave for you. Let's Let's see how things shake out over the weekend, shall we? That sounds fine to me. Listeners, a reminder that if you like the Pillar Podcast, you can do two things that are important to us. You can subscribe to the Pillar and the Pillar Podcast at PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Become a paying subscriber so that we can keep doing this for you. And um, share the Pillar, the Pillar post on Tuesday and Friday, and the Pillar Podcast with those who might enjoy it. Um, So subscribe, share. I said two things, but actually three. Subscribe, share, and then, if you would... um, leave a review of the Pillar Podcast on whatever podcasting app it is that you listen to so that we can be better algorithmically rated and then more people can listen to us, which in, as in so far as I know is good good for us. I think we want that. I'm, I think we want that. But I'm mostly thing, convinced we want more people to listen. Subscribe. PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Share by whatever means you feel compelled to do so and uh, give us a rating. Unless you don't like the show, in which case keep your rating to yourself. Yeah. Yep. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by new father, uh, Ed Condon. Uh, Please tell little Miss Condon and your wife, Mrs. Condon, that we say hello. I certainly will. All right. Toodaloo.